Welcome to A Journey to Inner Wisdom. This is Crystal, Wisdomologist and host of this podcast. As with any journey, there are many ways to get to where we're going. In this journey to inner wisdom, there are many tools and practices, paths and possibilities, guides and mentors. Some we search for, some we bump into, and some are just set down plunk in front of us, whether we are looking for it or not. I will explore some of these tools and practices, paths and possibilities, and interview guides and mentors who have had an influence, who may have an influence on your journey. I use the word tools because in whatever we do, we use tools. Carpenters use tools, chefs have tools, artists have tools, teachers have tools. Maybe not in a box, but certainly in a file or somewhere. So too, there are tools for the journey. And we all have a different journey. What may strike one of us may not resonate with someone else. Our task is to be aware and awake in order to notice the invitations that are in front of us. So today I'm at G of the ABCs of Inner Wisdom, and I'm focusing on grief for today's program. I'm talking with Sam Lucier, who has had a very interesting life journey, which has led her to be a grief counselor. She's been working with groups and individuals for the last 25 years, focusing on the journey of grief and grieving. And she is the co-founder of the South Okanagan Lost Society. So welcome, Sam. Thanks. Thanks. Happy to be here. Good. Good. So Sam, as we all know, we each have a unique journey and uh, in terms of our life journey. And for me, it's all about a journey to wisdom to discover our inner being, our inner self. And it entails up and ups and downs in life. And it includes birth and death. And as an Enneagram 7, I... Um, tend to avoid pain and suffering as much as I can. So grieving is not an easy thing for me, but I also know that it's a very important part of life and it's important in terms of my journey. And I know that if I don't pay attention to my grief and sadness, it diminishes my life somehow. I, I don't, I'm not able to really embrace the fullness of life without paying attention to my grief. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I reluctantly thought, oh, I really need to have a podcast on grief because the part of me that says, oh, I don't like talking about grief. And then the other part of me, the healthier side said, yes, I do. And particularly with my niece just dying two months ago and having to really face the family grief, my own grief and um, our phone call after Crystal died, she's also Crystal, was very helpful for me. And I thought it's, it's a perfect topic for us to be talking about at this time. So would you start maybe by telling us a bit about your journey, Sam, and some of the significant moments that led you to be such an advocate and mentor uh, around grieving and grief? Okay. I say, they say, you know, I, I've heard it said anyways, that one of your earliest childhood memories um, determines your life path. And uh, one of my earliest childhood memories is um, my mother was getting ready for a funeral. Mm. My uncle Mo, um, who lived in Windsor, was um, dying of uh, diabetes. And he's the one who called me Sam Spade. My name's Sandra, but when I was a baby, for some reason, I don't know why. I don't know if they threw a little fedora on me or if I smoked a little licorice pipe or what the hell it was. But anyways, he, he, he's the one who started calling me Sam Spade. So my mom is getting ready to go to his funeral. And I'm like three years old. 
Mm. So I said to her, so mama, where are you going? She was putting on one of those little black pillbox hats with the net over her eyes. Mm -hmm. And she says, I'm going to see Uncle Mo. And I said, well, how are you going to get there? And she said, I'm taking the bus. And I said, well, mama, if you can take the bus to heaven, how come Uncle Mo had to die to get there? Hmm. Hmm. So that was part of the family story anyway. Oh. And really my only memory of Uncle Mo. Um, and, uh, and then I worked also um, years later. I worked in the Catholic Church and I was doing parish work in Nelson. And while I was working at the parish in Nelson, there was a woman whose mother had died. And she was talking about being with her mother and, and what a tough life her mother had. And, and uh, where she was saying, I don't understand why my mother had the path she had, why her life had to be so hard because she was such a lovely woman. But she said, I was there the moment she died. And she said, what I felt was victory. Hmm. Well, you know, she said, she said, what I felt was something holy just happened. A life is completed. Hmm. And she said, I felt like you did it, mom. You did it. And um, that shifted things for me. That was a, that was a kind of a, like, really? Uh-huh. Because I was more of the attitude similar to yours. Like my older brother, my oldest brother is uh he's gonna be 81 next Monday. And he said to me, he'd say, How's work? I don't really want to hear nobody likes talking about that shit. <laughs> Just because he knows that I'm a grief counselor. Right. And, and uh <laughs> He just wants to know I'm working, I'm busy, I'm happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but people often say to me, how can you stand it? Like how, you know, like really I get a lot of eye rolling when people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a grief counselor. They're just like, oh my God, like why? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like why would you choose that? And I say, well, it's, it's mostly love stories actually. Oh. You know, people grieve because they love. That's right. If they didn't love, they wouldn't feel a thing. That's right. And and so grief is anchored in love. And um, and the other part is, I mean, it's such an innate part of life. You know, mm -hmm. I, I I saw I saw a post the other day, and it said something like, you know, all things in life, everything that we love, we lose so that it can become precious to us hmm. with something like that. And I just thought, Oh, geez, but, but we do lose, you know, and mm -hmm. I, you know, especially at this particular age in my life, I I'm, I'm losing friends. I think, you know, over COVID there was so much loss. Mm -hmm. Loss is such a huge part of life, but we live in this, Alan Mofelt, who's this grief therapist out of uh, Colorado says, we live in a grief illiterate culture. You know, we live, he says, you know, you go to Portugal and, you know, you see someone in black, you know, immediately there's been a death in the family. It's happened in the last year. This family's mourning. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know that, you know that right away. We don't, we right. don't have any of that stuff, you know. Right. And we have in our culture about a three month window of acceptance for loss. 
Wow. Which, you know, you know, where people after about three months, it's almost magical. People will start saying, oh, people are asking me if I'm, you know, ready to go out again, if I'm, you know, getting over it, if I'm doing better, feeling better, you know. Um, usually what happens at that point is people are just kind of coming out of the ether of the loss and really beginning to feel the pain of it. And uh, if it's a major loss anyway. And so, yeah, it's a tough, tough time. And COVID, COVID has um, impacted us. Like I've got several people who, you know, tell me, well, my grandpa went in, you know, a young man raised by his grandparents. And so my grandpa went into the hospital and I could only see him through the window. They wouldn't let me visit him. Yeah. You know, and no funerals. Yeah. And he's, you know, you know, people don't know what to do, how to mark that ending of life. Like I remember years ago when I was working in Victoria at a funeral home and a woman came in and she says, I, you know, her mom had died. And I said, are you going to have a service? She goes, Oh, you bet we're having a service. She says, my dad didn't want one. We didn't, any, we didn't do anything. And she says, and it was like, well, what now? Like, are we just supposed to go back to work? Are we just supposed to act like nothing happened? You know? Mm -hmm. So in that way, like ritual does for us something we can't really do for ourselves. And, and, you know, to, to have a, have, an event, a funeral, a celebration of life, an interment that's public where the community can gather around and hold these people, this grieving family up and help them out and support them. You know, people aren't getting that. People aren't getting people dropping by to see them bringing food, bringing tea, or if they bring food, they bring it, they leave it at the door and no contact. No, I'm not coming right. in. I don't want to, you know, just, right. you know, there you go, you know, and um, uh, so much fear and so much um, isolation. And it's a different kind of isolation. It's, it's a very new isolation because we're not able to move about in this world in the way that we always have been able to. Well, so it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking that um, because we're, we are an illiterate culture around grief, it's, it's, this is even more shocking for us because at least we had something that we could do in terms of some uh, go to the funeral home, have a wake, have the funeral, even though there, there were cer certain beliefs around it like okay you're done and we can't even do that I mean it must be traumatic for a lot of people how, how do they how can they begin to really move through the grieving process mm -hmm. with, with <clears throat> more strictures to it yeah it's horrible I mean mm -hmm. it's it's terrible and it's 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 got all kinds of um, complications in it mm -hmm. for one thing you know like the thing about people not being able to um, you know visit people at the hospital not not being able to you know uh, have graves or you know even visitations at the, at the funeral home um, 
or not being able to hug, not being able to touch, wearing masks, crying your eyes out, your masks are soaked. You know, your, your nose is all congested and everything else that happens when you're crying. I mean, it's just really, really has a huge impact on how we experience loss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so like we would encourage people, you know, you could write letters, you can do things online, you can have Zoom meetings, you can, although Zoom meetings, you know, like they, they're fabulous for the people that they work for, but there's a whole body of people, um, particularly seniors who um, either have hearing issues or they, they have, you know, internet, they have uh, technology problems, you know, they, they, they are, they're not comfortable with technology. Um, and so, you know, this morning in, in my seniors grief group, we were talking about, um, just the impact of loneliness. Yeah. And, and, you know, people, people particularly who, you know, retired here and don't have family here and then their spouse dies, they don't have they don't have that network of support that they had in their homes. Mm-hmm. They don't know people. They were largely dependent on each other. And then that one person's gone. Um, uh, yeah. When they weren't allowed to visit them in the hospital, they weren't allowed to, you know, they could see them through the window. Um, there's, you know, they die and they're not allowed to have a funeral. They're not allowed to gather. You know, yeah. like that kind of stuff is traumatic for people. You know, it's kind of, it's like the losses within the loss. Like we experience, you know, when someone dies, we experience the loss of that person. But, you know, so it's, you know, the loss of maybe a spouse, but also our best friend, our companion, our lover, our, you know, our, our, um, our tennis partner, our crib partner, our, um, you know, our co-grandparent or, you know, like the things that we do together. And then all of a sudden that person's not there. And, uh, and, and that society, you know, like someone can spend 40, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years with somebody. Yeah. And three months after that person dies, people are saying, so you feeling better now? Oh my God. You know, like I would say my mother, after 70 years of marriage, my dad died. Um, I would say she, she was probably in her fifth year. She was coming out of the grief. Hmm. Hmm. Like it, 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 it was immobilizing for her. It was crippling yeah. for her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she never, never lived alone in her life. She right. Never, you know, um, she always, she just went from her family home to my parent, you know, my dad's family home. And then, you know, they had their own kids and away they went. Yeah. yeah. So, so I use, um, I use William Warden's um, theory, you know, he was a contemporary of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and then uh, they part a company because she wanted to stay working with palliative um individuals and he wanted to work with grieving individuals and so he came up with what he said were these four tasks that people need to work through and the first task is acknowledging the reality of 
of the death. And um, so when people say, I can't believe it happened, I still can't wrap my head around it. It just doesn't feel real to me. This feels surreal to me. I just, you know, I just can't, I can't believe he's not there. I keep going to call. They're working through that first, that first mm -hmm. task. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's not simple. It's not, I mean, we could see a dead body and still be in a state of disbelief. Yeah. Because we can't prepare for something we've never experienced. So you can't prepare for the loss of someone who's always been there. That's right. We can't imagine what our life's going to look like without them. I mean, we can imagine, but we really have no clue. So we can only prepare for things we've experienced. <clears throat> so, so um, one of the things, like he talked about the mediators of mourning, he called. <clears throat> and the mediators of mourning are those those things that separate you know a peripheral loss from a major loss it's mm -hmm. like what are those what so the first one is well who was this person for you mm -hmm. so you say it was my dad it was my husband it was my son it was my daughter it's my wife it's my mom that's very different than it was my great aunt right it was my it was my cousin or it was it was my neighbor's dad you know like so who that person was the second was well what was how stable was your relationship mm -hmm. so and we know actually that people who had you know conflicted relationships tend to have a worse time with grief yeah um, because they're kind of left holding the bag they yeah. you know we always yeah. think we're there's going to be time to work this shit out you know <laughs> and then, yeah. and then uh, there's no there's no do-overs yeah death you know it's like that person's gone um so so kind of the nature of your relationship if you're saying yeah it was pretty stable it was pretty good you know or i have a lot of regret or i have a lot of guilt mm. or i have a lot of shame or you know i just you know like one woman she said to me i didn't miss a thing i spent you know i was with my Mom and with my dad till the moments they died, they drew their last breath and I didn't miss a thing. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so beautiful to get to that point. Um, yeah. <clears throat> the third one is, so, so who was that person to you? Uh, was, did you see it coming? Right. So if you didn't see it coming, like in any, any sudden death is considered traumatic. Um, the death of a child is considered traumatic. Um, you know, but yeah, yeah. Mm. So if you didn't see it coming, like sometimes you see it coming, like, you know, I was talking to a woman whose, um, you know, nephew died of, uh, of an overdose. I said, did you see that coming? She said, oh yeah, yeah. he saw that coming. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, then I talked to another family who, lost um a son to to suicide and i said did you see that coming we did not see that coming yeah. we did not know he never talked about it. never mentioned it so we had one conversation once he said i would never do that mm. you know? and <clears throat> so they're just like um we don't see what we're not looking for so you know if we do if you didn't see it coming or if you did see it coming yeah um and then the next one was, were you able to get there? 
like what was your proximity yeah you know like um when i worked at the funeral home and people would say you know people would say well why do people embalm bodies i'd say well in our family catholic um my sister lives in ontario so she's got to get here <laughs> yeah <clears throat> so so that's what we did so you know my parents bodies were embalmed um but if it was just local, no, you don't need to do that. Like if everybody can get here. Yeah. And the first thing that people use, I mean, often say is I want to see him. Mm. I want to see him. You know, where's my dad? I want to see him. Where's my mom? Um, the, so so were you able to get there? The, the fifth one was like, was it a stigmatized death? Because if it's, yeah, stigma, it means nobody wants to talk about it. Huh. It was a suicide. Uh, it was an overdose i mean in the 80s it was aids right right you know people were you know like with suicide i mean suicides are mostly unreported overdoses many overdoses are unreported suicides hmm. you know um <clears throat> but that thing is yeah it's stigmatized or stigma people don't want to talk about it people don't want to say anything and then, um, and then there's um, an ambivalent loss um, is, is like, like say um, your ex-husband dies. Mm, yeah. And you're kind of like, well, he was the love of my life, but he was such an asshole. I left him, <laughs> you know, um, but he was still the love of my life. And I can't believe I'm having all these feelings now that he's dead and I can't talk to my kids and I'm sure not gonna talk to my new husband. You know, <clears throat> mm, mm. or like a disenfranchised loss, and mm. then and then um, yeah, I think the ambivalent loss is more like when uh, there's no body. You know, uh, you know, like I haven't seen my son for five years. Right. He was living on the streets last I heard. Um, you know, or I haven't I haven't seen you know like this person left haven't seen him i don't know there was there was a there was a big case here in penticton a few years ago a woman um and her husband were heading down to arizona mm -hmm. and oh. took a wrong turn yeah. Creek Camp. yeah so he said i'll go for help and she waited in the trailer well somebody found her she was totally emaciated and you know on death's door but like with her husband because there's no body it's kind of like, right. well, should I have a funeral? So do you hope or do you have a funeral? Right. You know, so, so there's that. And then, so those are, those are the mediators of mourning. Those are the things that can complicate our ability to move through grief. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and also, you know, we have culture, we have history, we have things that we do and we're not, when we're not able to do those things, it frustrates that process for people. Right. So for people who do those things, you know, for people who, no, no, we have a visitation, then we have prayers, then we have mass, then we have the interment, and then we have the reception. <laughs> you know, like that's that's kind of the Catholic way to do it. And then when no, no, we don't get to do any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can you can have an interment, but you have to be, you know, six feet apart. And 
Mm. You can only have, you know, like, I mean, at one point it was less than 10 people there. Then it went to 30, Mm. you know, so very, very different. So, so when people are in that, um, when I call it the ether of the loss, that's usually, you know, you've, you first heard of the loss. First of all, most people would say, you know, you, you, you're you're in shock, you're crying, you don't mm-hmm. really believe it. Um, but there's a, also a part of us that feels like, wow, like I knew I'd be sad, but geez, I thought it'd be way worse than I am. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like people say that to me all the time, like, gee, you know, my daughter died. I thought I'd be really choked, but I feel like I'm handling it really well. And I'm, and I usually say to people, that won't last, eh? right that's part of that disbelief that's that's that thing like you don't really know what it means that this person isn't there yeah yeah because they've always been there so it's going to take a little bit of time for life to to show you you know Mm -hmm. that that person's not there so um yeah when we when we can't do the things that we're used to doing um Yeah, it alters things for us. And when, when, um, like, so I would say normally, you know, and when you're in the ether, the loss, it feels surreal. It doesn't yeah. feel quite real. You have absolutely no control over your emotions. Some people cry rivers, and some people are just kind of like, holy, like, yeah, like I don't, I don't think so. I, I would say, um, you know. In my own family, I had a sibling dealing with cancer when my dad died. Mm-hmm. Years later, years later, the grief started. Huh. Years after my dad was gone. Huh. Um, um, you know, so, so like in the beginning, in the ether of the loss, most people, you know, don't eat. Mm. Um, have trouble sleeping or else they can't stay awake. It's like, you can't sleep, but you don't want to get out of bed. Right. You don't want to shower. You don't want to engage with people. Yeah. It's like your, your, your emotions are on this hair trigger response. Yeah. Um, highly reactive. You know, I say grief amplifies things when we're grieving. Everything is more, everything is bigger. Everything is worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you start to kind of come out of that ether, and, and I say, it can be anywhere from a week to a year, mm-hmm. depending on how traumatic the loss was. Um, when people start coming out of that, it usually gets quite a bit worse for them. Mm. Um, and then usually, usually around the time most people have kind of left. You know, everybody's kind of gone home. Right. Funeral's over. The services are over. Everybody assumes that you're doing better now, and that's usually when people will come in for counseling. They'll be like, "Something's wrong with me." Mm. And um, and I would say, actually, you're well within the realm of normal. You know, like you think you were with somebody for 40 years. It's been three months. Think of a three-month-old baby and a 40-year-old. Like if you just kind of want to try yeah. to figure out so why is yeah. this so me <laughs> you know um so so when people move to that next task where they're dealing with the pain 
So it could be regret, it could be loneliness, it could be shame, it could be fear. You know, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, first line of his book, Grief Observed, he says, nobody told me grief felt so much like fear. Oh. The anxiety, you know, people would get anxiety. It's like, I feel afraid. Well, what are you afraid of? I don't know. I just feel afraid. Well, mm -hmm. part of it is our sense of feeling safe in the world. Everything's been, that's right. Life has been yeah. taken. Yeah. yeah. When you yeah. think life is supposed to be fair and then you find out it isn't. Yeah. You know, so um, usually when people are in that place where they start working through the pain, the regret, you know, like I had one woman, you know, kind of came in and, you know, really accusing her husband of a lot of stuff. And so I got her, you know, writing letters to him and doing some journaling and working stuff out. And then she says to me, it was me, actually. It was me who was the asshole. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Mm. And uh, I find that, you know, in complicated grief, when people just are not moving, usually there's a secret. Oh, interesting. It's almost uncanny how that, it almost would be right around the point where in counseling, I feel like I get to that point where I think, geez, I don't know if I'm going to be able to help that person. Yeah. If I say to them, was there a secret? Wow. Almost always there is. It'd be like, well, I found some letters that she was writing to her ex-husband. Wow. Or somebody said this to me, or I I was looking in, I was looking in my husband's emails, mm. and he was communicating with somebody that I didn't know about, and mm. you know, so stuff happens, and yeah, dealing with the pain, dealing with the shock um, of not being able to save that person. Um, we were talking about blame the other day, you know, and I said, well, someone says, well, what's the point of blaming? I said, well, it keeps us from grieving, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like saying, well, that doctor missed that diagnosis. Yeah. You know, I'm going to write a letter to, you know, um, well, that's just a way to not grieve. It's taking our energy somewhere else, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the third task, so, so in that second task, when people are dealing with the pain, it's kind of like the grief and then, and then survival, you know, they're just kind of like, okay, I just got to get through this day. I've had, you know, people say to me, God almighty, it was all I could do to get to my car after my shift was over. Wow. You know, so people go back to work or, you know, go back to their, try to go back to the routines, but it takes so much energy to contain their pain that they often have very little energy to socialize or to engage with people. Right. They tend to be very isolated during that period. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, kind of, I, I think about, you know, in uh, Miriam, uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's book, when, um, uh, you know, after everything kind of fell apart in Avalon and she went to the island and the Merlin, went to her, mm -hmm. you know, and he said to her, you know, come back, come back, your work's not done. And she said, 
no, you know, like nothing turned out the way I wanted it to. Like nothing turned out. Like this was not the way my life was supposed to be. And uh, no, no, I'm just going to stay here on this island until I die. And he said, you know, with all its pain and sorrow, there's still beauty and wonder. And life, bittersweet life, is calling you back to itself. Mm. You know? So eventually we start to want connection with people, you know? And, um, and the third task that William Warden observed was exploring the impact of the loss on the landscape of my life. It's like, it's like taking stock of what's, what's left here. Mm. You know? And so um, the internal landscape is my beliefs about who I am and, you know, based on that relationship. So if that was my spouse, I need to move from the we the hour, the us, to me, my, mine. Mm. Um, instead of we were going to do this, I'm going to do this. We used to like, I like. So separating, separating that stuff internally, you know, signing the widow, taking yeah. the wedding ring off, you know, like all those things. Then the, the second um, landscape is the external landscape, which is property and things. Mm. So, um, you know, I had, I had a, a, a woman tell me one time, she inherited, she inherited her parents' house mm -hmm. when she was raising her daughter. And she said, one day she got up and she says, I'm still the daughter in this house. Huh. She said, it's still my parents' house. Yeah. Still my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And I'm still the daughter. And she said, you know, like she inherited their furniture and, and you know, their dishes and everything. And she was just like, oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. And then she's just like, this is not so great. Right. So she said, she woke up her daughter and she said, come on, moving day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, went shopping for some new furniture and stuff like that to just kind of try to own it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? And uh, yeah, dealing, I mean, some people there's, uh, I think it's Al Mofelt, he talked about what he called mummification. Mm. And that's when, when people leave everything exactly the way it was. Yeah. You know, the clothes are still there. Right. So like the two extremes, I was, you know, talking to a guy one time and he said he had gone out to um, the grist by the mill, which is a little, little uh, place that mills flour in uh, Karameas, just outside of town here. And um, he says, so there was some summer dew there and he went and ends up at a picnic with this old guy and the old guy's telling him, he says, you know, when my wife died, he lived in a motor home and he said, everywhere I looked, it reminded me of her. Yep. And he says, so he says, I packed my bag and I sold it lock, stock and barrel. And he said, I'm just so sorry I did that. You know, I had a, I had a woman after her husband died, she sold the house and she said, why didn't anybody just take me aside and tell me I could do it? You know, I was mm. so scared. And, you know, like, uh, so it's big. It's big. 
you know, one woman saying like, oh my God, I have my own bathroom. I have my own bedroom. <laughs> this is my house, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a, it's like a tragic awakening. Yeah. You know? And, and then the last um, landscape is, is um, the spiritual landscape. It's what we believe about life. Mm. And so that thing about, you know, one of the, I was at a workshop with, um, uh, his name was Robert Neidemeyer. He's a, he's a grief therapist and author. And I think he's out of Texas, but he was going to workshop in Kelowna and I went to it and he said, you know, do you experience people getting angry at God when a death occurs? Mm, yeah. And I said, you know, I find a lot of people out here anyway, uh, in the, in the East where, I mean, in the West where, you know, religion is a little bit up in the air. People are upset with life. People don't feel safe. People mm. don't feel safe. It's kind of, you know, uh, if there's a loss in the family, people tend to be very protective of the surviving members. Right. You know? Um, and then, you know, kind of going back to just kind of that reminded me of going back to the disenfranchised loss mm -hmm. would be like, um, like a miscarriage. Right. Or an abortion. Yeah. An abortion. You know, those things, uh, eh, you know, like people, you know, like how you try grieving publicly and people are like, oh, I didn't even know you were pregnant. Yeah. Or, um, well, you know, it's what you were, what, two months, you know, three months, four months, five months. Um, I did a service for people who lost um, a child years ago, and there was a woman who was in her in her late 80s who came and she said she was a war bride and she got pregnant. And her for her first two pregnancies she miscarried. She said, in those days it was just get on with your life. Right. Get on with your life. Have more kids. And she says, but I thought about them every day. So she said, I came here. And she says, and just really feel happy that you let me give them a name because I encourage everybody to give a name. Wow. You know? mm. So we carry loss. We don't, we don't, um, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, right. I think that, you know, people can be very avoidant, um, but it doesn't go anywhere. Like as soon as you're ready to, turn your attention towards and people would say to me when they come in for grief counseling and they'd start crying and they go oh look at you you're making me cry I said no what that tells me is how close it is to the service yeah yeah you know that yeah. you can cry so easily tells me that that pain is right there and that you know, it's that a safe way. place to do that yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you know so and the final task that William Warden said was to find an enduring connection uh, with that individual in the midst of embarking on a life without them. And that's new because um, they, they used to, you know, they used to talk about closure. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and we know that there's just no such thing as closure. And, you know, they talk, now most of the research coming out is, talks about continuing bonds, you know, that we mm -hmm. continue that bond that we have with that person, even after they die, we continue to be in relationship with them, even though it's a very different relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? 
we continue to think do you think about your dad yeah yeah i do like you know i had a friend years ago who lost his dad and i said do you think about your dad he goes every day i thought that was an exaggeration but it's actually true (laughs) you know like i would say that i would Mm -hmm. say i think about my parents every day i think about elizabeth i think you know Mm -hmm. i think about i think about people i've loved and lost Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. still very real to me you know Mm -hmm. oftentimes people would come in and they'd say i'm afraid i'm gonna forget no it's like we we just don't forget the people we love like as long as we're conscious, we just don't forget them, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's interesting, we, well, we've just talked a lot about grieving and death in our family because of the circumstances right now, but I think it must've been um, 16 years ago, my nephew died and he was 19. And we were sitting all together right around his birthday and no it was actually around the date of his death and we were saying how he would be 35 right now but when I think of him he's 19 I always think of him as being 19 and he will also be 19 in my head look can you see what this article says how old would she be now and other grief equations Hmm. (laughs) yeah that's what we talked about last week in the group you know, someone, one woman, she said, I'm older than my husband. Yeah. He was always two years older than me, and now I'm older than him. Right. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, thinking, I, I had a friend, I remember when I was, when I was um, in high school, I had a friend who had an abortion, who was very Catholic, and um, for years, for years, she'd be like, my baby would have been three today. My baby would be starting school now. Yeah. My baby would be getting probably her first tooth, you know, like yeah. so those grief equations. Hey. Um, well, even it's interesting because growing up, my mom lost two babies and um, both were full term and lived like one was stillborn, but one lived a week or so. And the culture was, there were only five kids. Whereas now I think we're a little bit more open. My mom, like there are seven kids in our family. Whereas growing up, we would have just said five. And so there's much more openness on some yes. level to mm-hmm. recognize that, yeah, there, there were seven kids. And, I, and my mother the other day talked about 10 kids being in her family. And she hasn't always said that one of one of the she had a sister who died i think at birth and so the family always talked about nine but my mother was saying there were 10 in our family and i thought that's really good that she's saying that mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's true the whole um and, and that's actually one of the things that i work with parents about when mm-hmm. when when someone comes to see me is getting parents ready for when someone says that you know inane question how many kids do you have yeah you know like it's it's so you know just curiosity yeah and like how are you going to answer that question answer that question that's right you know like because everybody's got to get to their own place of where they feel okay with it and you know the thing the ways that our culture is so literate around grief i think is is 
you know, we have this innate um, avoidance of anything that's deemed painful, mm. you know, but pain is actually what enriches life. That's right. That's right. And loss, loss in some ways is a real initiation. I mean, we could mm. experience mm. a lot of losses that don't really change our life. But at one point we will change, we will experience a loss that will take the, the ground out from underneath us and bring us to our knees, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like yeah. a loss that seems inconceivable. You know, it was funny, um, this young guy that I met with last week, he, he, made, he says, he goes, I don't know if you're gonna understand this, but he says, you know, my grandma was so resilient. We kind of thought she would live forever. Yeah, yeah. I said, I said exactly the same thing to my brother on the day my dad died. I said, he basically sucked us into thinking he was immortal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he was 91. <laughs> so, you know, um, it takes time. It takes time to comprehend the meaning of a loss in our life. Yeah. And, and it's very painful. It's very painful in the beginning. And if, if you could just allow yourself to show up for the pain, mm. it will pass, mm. you know? Anything, anything that we attempt to suppress becomes more powerful to attempt to get our you know, to get our attention. Yeah. And so, so, you know, if we try not to cry, we'll cry all the harder, yeah. you know, it gets harder and harder to try. Not. It's like trying not to laugh, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, like it just becomes impossible. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, but if you just allow it, if you just kind of, you know, it's driving down the river channel and uh, well, little eagle kind of, swept down into the channel and caught a salmon mm -hmm. and he, he flew over the hood of my car wagging it and uh, splashed on my car and I mean instantly tears just started coming out of my eyes like I immediately thought my dad would love this uh, and I can't tell him you yeah yeah so so it's like we we grieve what we had yeah and we grieve what we thought we would have. Right. You know? Um, hmm. so, so Sam, what about this? Um, this is another area that's difficult for me and I think it is for a lot of people. When <clears throat> someone has just lost someone close to them, I, I sometimes just don't even know what to say. Like I'm, I'm one of the bring food people or do something like that, but I often don't know what to say. And even sometimes on Facebook, it's like, oh, what do I say? Because they're in such pain. It's like, I just want people to know that I'm thinking about them. So, so what would, how do, how are, what are some ways that are helpful to, uh, to, to those of us who are witnessing someone who's going through the grieving process, what's, what can we do? What can we say? What, how can we act? I think, I think first of all, would be getting ready not to cheer someone up. Mm, 
Mm-hmm. You know, like they're gonna be sad, and 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 they don't need to, they don't need to entertain you. <laughs> yeah. So so to just kind of be aware of that. Just be um, present to the pain. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes, if you have a memory of that person that they've lost, mm -hmm. um, that was dear to you, mm -hmm. sharing that memory, mm. you know, we, we brought that up in groups and, and everyone says, like the pain of not hearing their loved one's name being said, right, is devastating. Huh. It's like they, it's like they stopped existing, like they never were. Right. So when you, when you mention them by name, when you call them by their name, when you, when you say, oh my God, I will always remember David. He was so funny. Mm -hmm. I remember one time he did this. It just cracked me up, you know, <clears throat> like, yeah, I mean, that might inadvertently cheer a person up where you're not trying to cheer them up, but you're sharing a good story with them. Yeah. You know, well, after my mom died, I went to the mall to get a journal and, um, and this woman stopped me and she says, you're Sam. And I said, yeah, she says, you're Rita's daughter. And I said, yeah. And she grabbed my arm and she said, your mother was a community resource. Mm. And she said, she's told me, she says, when I was a young social worker, she said, I was assigned a woman, a young woman who had been shunned by the band and who was nine months pregnant and she needed a place to live and she needed, she needed everything. And she said, I just, she, I was assigned to her case and I didn't know what to do. I was young and, and someone said, here, call Rita Lucier. Hmm. And she says, I called your mother and your mother said, I'm busy right now. Can I call you in half an hour? Mm -hmm. And um, so she said, she called her back. She says, just give me the broad strokes. And so she told her, you know, mm -hmm. You know, 17 year old girl, she's nine months pregnant, she's in the hospital, birth is imminent, she has nothing, she needs everything. My mom calls back and she says, Okay, I have a place for her to live, and I've got a layout for the baby. We've got some vouchers for food, and she says, I'm going to send my husband to Smithson's Auto and they'll get her some furniture. <laughs> Smithson's auction sale, and they'll get her some furniture, you know. But her telling me that story, I'm crying my eyes out. But yeah. I, I love it. I will yeah. always remember it. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So that's well, a precious thing to be able to do for people if yeah. you can. The the other the other the story that, that I know that happened recently was my my sister-in-law who lost her daughter was in Costco and uh, one of our cousins saw her and she walked right up to her and she said. I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to hug you. And she just hugged her. I'm going to cry just saying it. And, and that's exactly what needed to happen because for my sister-in-law, some of the words that people were saying just didn't make sense to her. It was like, no, of course, of course I feel bad. Of course I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm all kinds of things. Don't tell me to be better because I'm not. And mm -hmm. this cousin was just, she just hugged her. And it was like such a relief for my sister-in-law to just be hugged no judgment no words nothing i thought oh that's good to remember that, that that's good what... to remember that like if you have that kind of relationship with someone that's right I was kind of let that grieving person you know give you the lead because you might run into a grieving person in costco and they might be like no 
<laughs> like, right. no, right. stay away from me. You know, and it just might be that they're just, you know, like they're just, they're getting triggered by everything. And they're sure. just kind of trying to get through the day. That's right. But I've had those moments. I've, and, and they talk, <laughs> you know, I'm walking through Walmart and someone says, Sam, I haven't seen you at any meetings lately. And I was going, oh, well, my dad died. And I was like, oh my God, I remember when my dad died. Are you okay? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> like, that happened to me so many times. Oh, but, but, you know, uh, yeah, like I think, I think the things to avoid saying, you know, they're in a better place. Yeah. Or, you know, there'll be a gift in this. There might be, but back off right yeah. now. There's yeah. Right now there's no gift. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you can't really think long-term. And I think in terms of helping people, don't say call if you need anything. It's way more productive to say, I'm going to the groceries. I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to get some groceries. What do you need? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really concrete. Um, or else, um, or do you want to make, do you want to make a list and I'll pick it up? Or do you want me to just come by and suss things out? Or do you want me to just, you know, uh, or, you know, do you need a ride somewhere? Or do you need me to watch the kids? Or, you know, like popping in on someone, checking with them. Mm -hmm. you know so you know like some people some people really don't like having people drop in when they're right right when they're really actively grieving because they're probably not getting dressed or not showering <laughs> they're not tending their hygiene yeah. you know like because they're just in la la yeah. land yeah you know sam what is what is a, a a few resources that would be helpful for people Okay. Um, there's there. I mean, there's a lot of really good books. This one here is a really little book. Um, it's called the wilderness. The wilderness uh, of grief. The wilderness of grief. Finding your way. Mm -hmm. by, Alan by Alan Wolfelt. Alan Wolfelt. Okay. The, yeah. the wilderness of grief. Finding your way. It's a, it's a little book. It's like a little gift book. Oh, but cool. it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's very poignant, and it's very easy read. And it's I I encourage people to get this for a friend instead of flowers. Oh, that's good. The wilderness. It's, a, it's such great. a good. It's such a good book. It's really about you know embracing that journey that it's anchored in love. That it's really between you and another soul. That you're working stuff out. That you're finding your way. Mm -hmm. And he has these touchstones for grief. And, and he really kind of puts it in, um, you know, it's a sacred path. It's yeah. a sacred path that you're on and you don't need to avoid it or be afraid of it. Um, yeah. That it can be very beautiful. And um, so there's that one. There's uh, Megan Devine's It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, Broken Open is not necessarily about loss per se but it's about life and there's some stuff in loss uh, and that's written by Elizabeth Lesser. That's a really mm -hmm. good book. Um, there's life after loss, um, which is by, um, I think it's Don Wheats, W-I-E-T-Z. Um, honor, I think honor, um, 
there's some there's some TED talks. One is uh, Lucy Holm. Mm-hmm. She wrote a book called Resilient Grieving. She's out of New Zealand and uh, lost a daughter. Um, and so uh, Resilient Grieving is a great book uh, where she was told basically after the loss of her daughter, you know, you may as well just write off your marriage in the next five years or 10 years of your life, you'll be grief stricken. And she said she was doing her, um, I don't know if it was her master's or her PhD in uh, America on resilience. Mm-hmm. And then she went back at the time of the Christchurch um, earthquakes and was working, you know, supporting the community. And then her daughter was killed. Mm-hmm. She said, she said she decided to apply her research on resilience to her experience of grief. Hmm. And, and her three tasks or three, not tasks, her three um, um, qualities of resilience. The first one she said where, you know, resilient people know that shit happens, mm-hmm. that life isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really nobody's fault. The second thing is, in spite of that, they can see good, experience gratitude and, and um, appreciation for life. And the third thing is that resilient people ask themselves, is this helping me or harming me? Mm. You know? And so she, she gives the example of being up in the middle of the night, 2.30 in the morning, going, you know, flipping through pictures of her daughter on her phone. And she said, yeah, this isn't helping. It's okay to do that, but it's 2.30 in the morning, you know? Right. And right. it's like, it was like when I used to work at the transition house, girls would come down three or four in the morning. Do you want to talk? I go, no, no, <laughs> no, because this is a time for sleeping and for your body to get healed. And, 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 you know, like if you want to talk tomorrow, but we're not going to open all kinds of crap up in the middle of the night and then you, right. you'll never get back to sleep. You know? That's right. That's right. So a lot of these resources that you you've just mentioned are actually on the Souls website. Good. Under Good. resources, and so I will put the the link on the uh, page of the podcast so that people can actually access some of these resources, and they don't have to be rewinding to hear what they are and who the authors and whatever are. So that's okay. great. There's two books. Um, I don't know if they're mentioned on there. One is um, um, Unattended Sorrow. No. Unattended and the other one Sorrow. Is, yeah. And the other one is The Wilderness of Grief. The Wilderness of Grief is not. Oh, the Wilderness of Grief is is that one by um, Alan Wolfelt. Yes. Um, no, what, what was the other one? So there's Unattended Sorrow and... So here are the ones, Sam, I wasn't ready to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Grief Works by Julia Samuel, Life Mm -hmm. After Loss, Mm -hmm. Resilient Grieving, Mm -hmm. Living with Grief, It's Mm -hmm. Okay That You're Not Okay, Mm -hmm. Getting Grief Right, and How Mm -hmm. to Go on Living When Someone You Love Dies. Yeah, that's good too, yeah. And then there are four TED Talks, as well as some websites as well. The other, the other thing I wanted to mention too is the um, documentary Speaking Grief. Megan Devine, mm-hmm. the author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay is in that. Mm-hmm. And that's a very good video. I watched it and then I've already recommended it to several people. That's also what, a very what good What was it called? It, it's, it's called Speaking Grief. 
it's okay. a, it's on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to put that link on as well, because that's, that's a good one as well. Okay. <clears throat> like I think there's, um, uh, Zoe Donaldson was one of the ones she's a neuro, uh, neuroscientist, I think who was approached by a grief therapist asking what they knew about the brain and grief. Mm -hmm. And she really makes a distinction. You know, she said, grief is not depression. It looks a lot like depression, but it's yep. not depression. So mm -hmm. treating grief, treating depression or treating grief as if it's depression doesn't work. Oh, that's interesting. Because often people are given an antidepressant when they're Exactly, grieving. exactly. Just about the way, particularly women. The two wow. drugs that people are given when they tell their doctor that they've experienced a major loss are yeah. antidepressants and Ativan. Okay, I'm going to look that one up. That sounds like a really interesting uh, book. Yeah. Cool. Well, Sam. And also Melody Beattie. Melody Beattie, um, mm -hmm. who wrote Codependent No More. She was big in the recovery mm -hmm. movement. Her 12-year-old yep. son died in a freak skiing accident. Oh, wow. And, I didn't know um, that. So she's done some writing around that, and she's... She, she's got a book called I think it's called a path with heart and that's a book that we use we use the closing um, you know to close our meetings with oftentimes um, our grief mm. support group because it's she's so good for helping people to learn how to talk to themselves and mm. comfort themselves mm. and not be but hard on themselves the other thing is you mentioned you know when your mom died you went out and you bought a journal I think that journaling is also very helpful isn't it very helpful even writing you know even having a journal for that you could have a grief journal mm -hmm. or you could have a journal where you're just writing letters to that person mm. or you know you know like one of the prompts the last wednesday of the month my group journals and um, one of the prompts is you know if i could sit beside you one more time uh, i would tell you hmm. or i would ask you yeah. or something i will always remember about you something that is painful for me when I think about you yeah you know just ways to access what's going on inside you mm -hmm. to get what's in there out yeah you know yeah exactly yeah very good very good yeah well Sam this has mm -hmm. been a delight enlightening educational and uh, yeah it's always wonderful to talk with you and to listen to your wisdom. And I love the way that you can just access so much information. It's, it's <laughs> wonderful. It's such a gift. It's such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Thank well, you very much. That was my pleasure. My pleasure. So hopefully, uh, hopefully those grievers out there, you know, when we were talking in one of my groups, one time somebody came and they said, is this the NA meeting? And I said, no, it's grief. No, it's a grief group. And they said, well, what's everybody laughing about? <laughs> we laugh, we cry, we laugh, we cry. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. It's it's the and and yeah. I mean, that's so often the case in my family when someone has died. It's like we're just sobbing. And then the next minute somebody tells a story and we're just in hysterics. And the same thing happens. What's wrong with you people? But it's it's the it's life. Like you're you're that's grieving right. the loss, but you're celebrating the life, and the two are so interwoven. And I think that's the thing that is so important about grief is that it's not linear. 
It's not from A to B. There's so much undulation and circulation and movement that there's no one way to do it. That's right. And everyone, everyone is different and to really honor that. Mm -hmm. People grieve the way they live. That's right. And, and yeah, it is different. And it's, and, you know, even with the tasks of William Morton, he said, people are all over the place with them. Mm-hmm. You'll be working on your last task and there'll maybe be an anniversary that catapults you right back to that first task. Exactly. You know, yeah. or, yeah. you know, something happens and you have this wave of sadness and you're, you know, and you find yourself just dwelling on the pain for a while, mm-hmm. but hopefully, you know, the immensity of things becomes more manageable mm-hmm. as we find a way to live with it. Hey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening. And I hope that this was helpful for those of you who are grieving and helpful for those of you who are walking with someone who is grieving. And I hope mm-hmm. you will join me next time when we talk about the heart. <laughs>